from the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco. This is Startup School Radio. Welcome to Startup School Radio, live from Wharton's San Francisco campus on Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Kat Mignolik, a partner at Y Combinator, where we fund early stage companies and work with them to build billion dollar businesses. Coming up on today's show, I'll speak with Carla Gallardo and Shilpa Shah, the founders of San Francisco-based online retailer Kuyana, a fashion brand that designs women's premium essentials with the philosophy of fewer, better things. Every year at YC, we host a conference called Startup School, where amazing founders tell their stories, what they've learned building their companies, the screw-ups, the successes, and everything in between. This show brings those founders to you on a weekly basis. We broadcast every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. We're on Twitter at bizradio111, and I tweet under Kat Mignolik. I'm happy to be joined today by Carla Gallardo and Shilpa Shah, the founders of fashion e-commerce startup Kuyana. Carla and Chilpa launched the brand in 2013 and since then have grown Kuyana into the modern women's destination for impeccably crafted premium quality accessories and apparel. The brand is headquartered in San Francisco and they have stores in San Francisco and LA. Um, Carla, Chilpa, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. All right, so I'd love to go back to the beginning. I haven't actually heard too many stories about how you met and how you, how you, you know, what inspired you to start Kuyana. Um, yeah, <laughs> we love how we met. Um, <laughs> we always like to say that it was very serendipitous. Um, I was in business school getting my MDA, MBA sorry, at Stanford my second year, and Chilpa was visiting Stanford uh, one of the days that I was in my entrepreneurship class, and she sat in the back, and usually when you're a prospective student and you sit in the back of the class, you're asked to introduce yourself, and she introduced herself as a mom and as a UX designer. And um, right at that uh, point of time, I was working on a project with my Stanford classmates on um, this um, online baby book that we were building and we needed a UX designer and my task was to find one. Um, and definitely in our area, they're, they're not, there's not a lot of supply of UX right. designers. So when Shilpa introduced herself, um, I approached her after class to chat to see if she was interested in helping us a little bit. Um, and you know, we both had interest in each other. She had an interest in Stanford. I had an interest in her as a mom and as a UX designer. And we worked together for a little bit after that. Um, it was great, um, but we really hit it off as friends too. And we kept in touch. We were Facebook friends and we didn't talk a lot to each other for about a year or a year and a half. But we like to say to each other how we used to look at our Facebook pictures <laughs> and like know everything about <laughs> were, each other. Were you life. based at this point in the same city or were you kind of working together on this project remotely? Yeah, that project just lasted a couple of months. It was just for a class, but um, Shilpa ended up going to Berkeley for her MBA and I stayed at Stanford. So I graduated from Stanford and went to Apple for 10 months after school. And so, um, so we didn't really see each other. Um, but when it was time to start Kuyana, and once I, I decided that I wanted to find a great co-founder, the person that was the first on my list was Shilpa. Um, and so I came to visit her at the Berkeley campus. She had just actually given birth to this adorable little boy. She was the super mom <laughs> with two kids getting her MBA. Um, and I asked her to join me as a co-founder. Um, so uh, it was a very loaded question. But um, actually, no, I asked her to join me in the company. She told me that the only way she would join me is if she would be co-founder, which is exactly nice. what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, and so we, we started working together in 2012 officially, but December 2011. What was the, um, the genesis for the idea? So, so you were at Apple at this point. Yeah. And um, what kind of inspired the initial, like, what was the seed of the idea? Yeah. Um, Kuyana, actually, the seed of the idea um, started back in 2000. So when I moved to the U.S. for college. Um, I grew up in Ecuador. My family's Ecuadorian. I'm Ecuadorian, too. Um, I moved here for college, and I ended up staying. Um, so when I moved to the U.S., there were two things that were, um, you know, the big opportunities and reasons why 
um, the idea of queer anesthetic to to boil in in my brain. Um, one of them was the fact that um, as a consumer, I had been uh, raised to consume in a certain way, and um, that actually reflects in the philosophy of our company, which is fewer better things. Um, our uh, growing up was very intentional for me. Everything we purchased at home was very intentional. How you know the, my wardrobe was built was very intentional. Sometimes it was really upsetting as a teenager not to be able to buy everything I wanted in terms of trends and, and just you know have very few items that were more classic um, but that was my upbringing and it was was that something that so it was instilled in you from your family yeah um, mostly from my father um, who raised us um, and um, it was the very European mindset he he um, studied in Germany and brought a lot of that culture back to our home um, but the second thing which also influences the way that um, um, Ecuadorians consume is the fact that our country has gone through a lot of dramatic um, volatility, um, mm -hmm. you know, political and financial, and so um, you really have to think before you buy something. Um, and so those th two things really influenced the way that I was, uh, you know, brought up and that how I consumed. And so for me, arriving to the U.S. for college and we're just bombarded. <laughs> it was just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel like we get brainwashed to want to yeah. just buy quickly and yeah. I mean, not only seeing my friends and what it meant to go shopping for college. I mean, it was crazy to just experience the Bed Bath & Beyond situation. Target, and Target like, checklists. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but also the amount of options that are available for consumers and just the sales and just the way that products are pushed and pushed and pushed and then consumers are buying and buying and buying and it ends up being a very unthoughtful process. And consumers end up being happy with very few things that they buy because not everything that they buy is something that they thought of as an investment that they would keep for a long time. So that was part one. And then number two, um, growing up in Ecuador also gave me exposure to um, to the retail industry. And specifically, uh, we have two big industries in Ecuador that of experts. Um, one of them is the Panama hats, which Ecuador doesn't like uh, the international name of this hat. It's actually a Tokija straw hat, um, but it's called Panama hat because uh, it became popular during the construction of the Panama Canal and all the photography that came from that um, from that time and um, President Roosevelt wearing the hat on the canal. Oh, wow. Um, that's yeah. cool. So that, that's, that's one of our big finished goods exports, and it's the most you know, it's a hat that has become a fashion hat now and that everybody wears. Uh, when you're an Ecuadorian uh, and before the, before the, back in 2000, nobody would wear that hat around because it was a hat that the indigenous wear to work right. um, under the sun. So, um, so that industry really grew and it, that hat was incredibly big always in Europe and now in the U.S. And um, the peculiar thing about that hat is, one, the consumers don't really know the story of that product, right? So who makes it, how it's made. This hat is woven by women only in the mornings in the mountainous areas because that's when before the heat really kicks in at noon or 1 p.m. Um, it's woven for hours with natural straw that's only found uh, in the Andean region and takes takes a lot of effort um, and it ends up being sold here in the U.S. for for a good price I would say compared to what it's actually right. sold by those um, artisans in Ecuador before it gets exported so um, you know seeing that industry seeing the alpaca industry in Peru leather industry in Argentina and how globalization has given access to um, global consumers to those products, but not really linking the stories to the consumers. And then secondly, also how many industries were being left behind by luxury brands who were in charge of bringing and were creating those products locally, but then moving to Asia to um, to take opportunity of lower uh, price cost, points of yeah. production. So a lot of these factories were being left behind, premium factories, incredible factories that uh, were producing luxury goods, but um, all of a sudden, you know, in the past two to three decades have uh, actually had to shut down most of them and, and there are very few survivors. So essentially was was your mission at first to kind of uh, expose, you know, the international or the U.S. consumer to these stories and to the people creating these products and to, to directly connect them? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Two, I mean, and those were the, the two findings. The first one is consumers really aren't happy with what they're buying. You know, mm -hmm. the quality is low and they're buying very impulsively. And two, there's actually opportunity to make great products and offer them to the, in the U.S. market at prices that are not necessarily the luxury price points, right? Um, right. So there's an opportunity to give access to quality and to the story of, of the products that are made around the world for us. Yeah. We also um, 
we also realized a couple other insights about our consumer. One of them being that our one actually with all of the choices that you have in the, the United States still didn't have a go-to place to get the things that they wanted to wear all the time. So even their essentials were a big gap in the market. So if they found something that they wanted to buy or wear again, usually that product was no longer made. It was a couple seasons old at the point where they needed to repurchase it or the quality had gone down over time. So even though there's all these consumer choices available, there isn't a place for women to really go buy quality essentials that she wears all the time. Right. It's a problem that I faced. I mean, I mean, you want to buy these essential, beautiful, basic things um, that you need and wear every day. But also then you you come across issues like, you know, a lot of the companies that produce that stuff yeah. produce them in giant, you know, warehouses, factories where you're concerned that, you know, are the workers making these uh, right. treated well? Are, are, are their stories being told? Yeah. Are they being compensated? Um, and I, I think you answer a lot of those. Yeah, there's a huge, I mean, not only is the retail supply chain one of the most wasteful of supply chains out there, it's also filled with a lot of, um, you know, social issues. Um, there's, you know, beyond just the labor force that's in um, employed to make these products that we kind of take for granted and dispose of so uh, readily. Um, there's also a lot, there are a lot of issues around, um, minimum order quantities, mm -hmm. like just total excess inventory, moving, um, moving really premium materials to, you know, across the world to get them manufactured, to lower yields. Um, there's just that the, the re retail supply chain has problems across the entire thing. Um, and so what Guyana really does is actually um, is, is innovates on all of those points. Um, so from the very beginning of where our products are made, how the materials are, are resourced, how they're then manufactured into a final product, how they're brought back to America, how we sell them every place along the retail supply chain, there's innovation. Taking a step back really quickly, how did you come up with the name Kuyana? Um, it was in honor of the makers of our first collection. So our first collection ended up being a collection of straw hats from Ecuador and the makers of, of those hats speak Quechua. Um, and um, we wanted to honor them and use their language. Um, and we also wanted to, to name our company in, 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 with the philosophy of our business, which is we are better things. So Kuyana means to love. Um, and it's about loving what you buy and you know, us loving how we make it. Um, and, and, and yeah, it's about being intentional. So Shilpa, at the point that um, Carla came to you with the idea, how far along was it? Uh, how, you know, at what point were you in the business? So we had a proof of concept, like Carla had already done a lot of the groundwork. We had uh, two collections. So she had gone to Ecuador for the first Panama hat collection and then also to Peru. Um, it was the first website. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of like the kind of groundwork was laid. Um, but it was really an idea that had yet to be scaled and proven um, and completely take shape. Um, so it was it was a very exciting time to join. We hadn't raised any capital at that time. And, um, you know, both of us, uh, what makes our co-founding team so great is that we have very complementary skill sets. Um, so Carla comes from finance, bank, banking, math. Um, I come from computer science, um, more graphic design and uh, user interface design. So that type of the world. Um, and so those skills go very well hand in hand, but neither one of us comes from retail or fashion. <laughs> right. So um, we were taking our analytical and creative mindsets towards a new problem. So it was really exciting to work together to figure out um, how to do all of it from scratch um, and really build it in a way that made sense to our analytical minds um, and then also had brand relevance to the market. In a way you could reinvent it because you weren't kind of establishment in retail or fashion. Yes. Was there anything that surprised you at the beginning about how retail worked? Everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everything was a surprise. Um, and, and But it was also an opportunity, right? So like the, the learning that we experienced along the way, every, every, every nothing came um, for granted which was very amazing because I think if somebody in this day and age who has retail or fashion background approaches the same problem, they would do the exact same kinds of things that they had been taught to do. So go find a big factory that manufactures everything. Whereas we were 
brought up in a very different way and our approach to um, fashion um, you know just materials was very different so Carla coming from Ecuador and seeing that industry firsthand my family being from India and if you wanted to make something you found really great material and then you found the people who made it mm -hmm. um, and so that's what we did we basically said okay where are the where are the best materials of the world we're going to go find the best craftsmen and the best factories and then scale it that way. And most people wouldn't have done that in a distributed fashion, but it made a lot of sense to us and we were able to do it in a very, um, in, a, in a way that um, really celebrates the economics behind the model as well and share that benefit with our consumers. If you're just joining us, I'm Kat Manialik and you're listening to Startup School Radio. I'm speaking with the founders of fashion commerce startup, Kuyana, Carla Gallardo and Shilpa Shah. So, Basically, um, you are at this point, um, you start working together and you have, you know, the basic groundwork laid out. Um, you're kind of learning things, you know, as you go because you're, you're not, you know, entrenched retail, you know, background people. Um, so how did you go about getting those first hundred customers? <laughs> it was our network, <laughs> our friends and our family. Um, yeah, we, Shilpa and I, um, well, I like to say that Shilpa is like the, sometimes the real pusher and like taking us out there, like no shame whatsoever. But um, but we were both so passionate about the idea that we, we, I mean, we did a lot of work around trunk shows and just anything we could do to put the brand out there in a very low cost way. And at this so, point, you have the, your first product, which are the hats. Yeah, well, we had two collections. When Shilpa joined, it was a line of hats and then a line of alpaca uh, goods, scarves, and we had these like oversized vests. Um, and so we were we were hosting our friends over at our apartments for trunk shows. Uh, actually, before Shilpa joined, uh, this is where my dad cried at some point and told my sister that he can't believe I left Goldman oh, Sachs no. to be a street vendor. But I actually was. I like had this little booth at tennis tournaments where I was selling the first line of hats. Um, but it, I mean, we really did a lot of things to just put ourselves out there um, and it was done before we officially launched and, and, and wanted to market our, our brand and as a fashion brand because we, we wanted to really understand what resonated with, with our customers and why they were buying our products. We always went for impeccable quality and we were working with the best makers of the world and the best materials and that wasn't in question but in terms of our brand and the messaging we were doing a lot of great things. Number one, we were innovating on the retail supply chain, and so we were being leaner than what the industry had been uh, in the past decades. Um, two, we were delivering really incredible quality at price points that were very disruptive, right? And so, uh, so that was something else. We are also delivering a story around a product. Um, we were also helping micro industries uh, rebuild themselves. So all these factors that were left behind, we were as we would grow we were they were going to grow and so there was a lot going on around our brand so we spent the first almost two years uh, as we were developing our supply chain also developing the that um, articulate you know one sentence that would deliver uh, the philosophy of our brand to our customers and that would actually attract them to buy from us in the end how did you come up with that you know your tagline um, in a room <laughs> in a, during a brainstorming session, but uh, it took a long time. So yeah. it was there's a lot of testing, of understanding what, how customers reacted to different things. Um, but and did you was it really just a, a process of talking to people in person? Like you're there at, at like a tennis match, <laughs> like yeah. selling and, and asking. Yeah, like, and observations. And I mean, most of our business was online, so we weren't getting a lot of reactions only when we were doing these more friends and family events um, but I think that you know we didn't need to sit with customers to to get to that it was more about us sitting down and seeing what exactly is like how can we articulate what we're doing you know we are and we realized that everything we were doing around this brand was about fewer better things our supply chain <laughs> was fewer better the way we were hiring people was fewer better the way we were f uh, photo shooting our products everything revolved around that philosophy and our promise to our customers what that was that philosophy as well um, and it's so interesting that fewer better things is something it's it's it, those are three words that we've heard before right and it really makes a great tagline and people get it yes. and then we discovered that nobody had trademarked that tagline either and so it, it just all makes sense. 
It was, I mean, it really did tap into that consumer need and angst that people were feeling, that there's just so much stuff around that it's not giving them that happiness or fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, it, and it was from those insights with, you know, like just interacting with customers and testing at every point in those first two years um, before we felt like we had a message that was strong to put out to market. Um, but, you know, tapping into that consumer need and, and, you know, now it's something that people are talking about all the time. You know, there's Marie Kondo's book and, you know, yes. lots of, lots of um, articles around um, having less but more um, because it's more fulfilling product. But at the time in 2013, we we were realizing something that we ourselves were feeling and we also noticed in the market that the, the same thing that I was referring to earlier, there's so many consumer choices, but not things that actually last or mean anything. And because we had built a retail supply chain that was fewer better, we could actually deliver on this promise to consumers in a way that nobody else had. So one thing that, um, did, was there a moment that you knew what you were doing was working? There were, um, there's not one specific moment, but there are a lot of moments along the way. Um, and even like coming up with the tagline, it did all happen in one afternoon, but after months of week, every week we would like come to talk it. about it and how we would message so it. So it seems like it happened overnight, but yeah. it was really... But it was a work in process <laughs> of like two years. Um, right. But when we, when we came up with the words, so we knew it was working because... Our friends and family in our network who supported us from the beginning, they bought over and over again. Of, of so the they were p- turning. Right. It wasn't that they supported us one time, right? They, it, they, were, they were repeating and it was always the same story that they would tell us that this, of all the scarves I have, I always grabbed this one, right? Like these products were working for them in a way that hadn't worked for them in the past. And so when we... When we came up with the tagline, and I think it was in um, around March of 2013, and we officially launched it in June, we knew once we had the words to move our customers to talk about us, that it would it would just snowball from there. We knew that we knew what you the, had a like yeah. something that was that could be spread by word of mouth. Yes, really exactly. Easily. Yeah, we already knew what the press headlines would read on the day that we would launch, and you know, June 6, 2013. We knew all of it just came. Um, together that that time. <coughs> so when you launched in June 2013, yeah. um, was that your the first time you were officially like really making it a push to get beyond your network of family and friends? Or had you already kind of like the you know, developed was, a community? Yeah, the word was spreading naturally. Mm-hmm. So um, one of, you know, things that we're most proud of is that um, so much of our growth is um, organic and authentic. It's coming from customers truly loving the product and sharing the product. So either verbally referring each other or gifting um, tremendously the products that really have meaning to them. And so um, we we knew all of that was was really working. And so in- were, was it mostly word of mouth, or was were there other channels? Like how how did people find out about you in those early days? Yeah, it's word of mouth really at the end of the day and um it still is um our products are incredibly powerful and um not only are our customers so happy with their purchase that they tell all their friends but our products are also spotted on you know on the streets or during events and um people ask where's that bag from or uh where's that coat from so. I'm, yeah, that's why I actually learned from you from Colleen Taylor, who who's at YC, and she was like, oh, because I said, basically, if I, I could just wear a black like shift dress every single day of my life, I would. And she was like, oh, you need to check out Kriana. <laughs> it, was, it was completely word of mouth. So it, it's working. Yeah. You know? And so, so how do you decide um, on your collections, on the products that you want to sell? So it was, it was maybe easy at first. You had like two very specific um, items and then as you've kind of expanded your offering what does that decision process look like yeah we um w- so we approach the design process there's definitely a lot of creative work that goes into it but we when we when we pick the categories that we want to go into we look at those as business opportunities so um so the design uh, you know the, the our designers don't start from a uh, blank canvas they already start with a, a certain few categories that we want to um, address in that season um, or that period of time that they're designing for. 
um, it's so 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 we have both um, on the creative side. It's it's really interesting and fun because we we launch products every two to three weeks. So there's something new. Oh, that's uh, coming awesome. out often, <laughs> yeah. uh, and because we launch very very few products, we really focus on describing you know why this why this product is made the way it is, what the materials are, who like where did we make it, um, um, and um, even though we launch products in in that sequence, we still approach uh, approach our productions as uh, seasons. So our, we we still have spring, summer fall uh, fall seasons in, in our collections, uh, in collections, sorry. Um, and so our designers are inspired by the summer season to design all those products that will launch from May through uh, July. Um, and so you can see the, the uh, infusion of, of the feeling of that season. For example, now it's spring for us. Um, and our inspiration was brought by the architect um, Barragan, who's a Mexican architect, and um, his architectural uh, um, uh, projects or have very strong lines and uh, we used a lot of that to the design our pieces for the entire full spring collection so have you know a trench coat that is incredibly like the details are all about the lines we have a, a great uh, poplin white shirt dress which can sound very boring but ours isn't because you turn your back to somebody and there's like a beautiful like um, statement pleat in the back um, so so that's how we look at the design from the creative side however we've we've gone through a process of saying okay well during the spring we want our customers to fill in like these 10 pieces that they need for that season no I think that's great and I think I love the idea that you release every two weeks you release something new and I think that that is another uh, indication that you're not from that old school fashion world that only you know does the once a season kind of showing I think it's so it keeps things fresh I'm sure and exciting for for you know your everyone wearing you have the best saddlebag launching today oh so. that's exciting Shameless plug, I'll have to check it out yeah <laughs> So I've been speaking with the founders of Kuyana, Carla Gallardo and Shilpa Shah. Coming up, we'll continue our conversation. Um, I'm Kat Maniolik, and you're listening to Startup School Radio on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. You're listening to Startup School Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome back to Startup School Radio on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius, uh, Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host, Kat Manialik, a partner at Y Combinator. For those of you just joining us, I've been speaking with the founders of Kuyana, Carla Gallardo and Shilpa Shah. We were ta just talking about how they decide uh, to basically uh, what products to feature next, what products to sell next, um, and I'm happy to welcome them back now. So I would love to talk next about um, you talked a little bit already about cleaning up the supply chain. And I'd love to talk about how do you go about, you know, finding the places to manufacture Kuyana clothing? We, um, we, we focus on the material. Um, everything about our products revolves around that. It's, it's really the, the kind of the first step for us. So when we think of, of leather, uh, we think of the best countries that manufacture leather and uh, we think of Italy, um, Argentina, Spain, um, with cashmere we think of Scotland, with uh, cotton we think of Turkey. So um, it really all revolves around that. Um, and um, once we decide what we're making and what materials we want to use, we go to those countries and if we've already um, set up our supply chains there with great factories, then we use our factories. But if we need to source something new, then we'll go out on a sourcing trip, which usually takes a while until we find those factories that um, that we that we decide to work with. So, how do you maintain maintain like these high standards, and also you know still are able to keep costs very reasonable? We uh, um, you'll be surprised by uh, how much it costs to make good quality products, <laughs> and I think that's really what um, what Kuyana and many of these direct to consumer new brands that are. Um, starting our, our um, teaching customers and you don't have to pay nine hundred dollars <laughs> for a cool yeah bag, an awesome bag that was made well yeah and you know there's really something about the luxury industry and luxury brands and that sense of exclusivity that that premium 
a price point puts on that product and how a woman feels when she's carrying a twelve hundred dollar bag, um, and 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 that's just a different experience. But we we, we w the way we price our product is by um, the the value of their quality mm -hmm. and um, and in a way that you know we're not pricing them at very low low price points. That's not our goal as our brands. We 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 want to price those products at, ex at at prices that are accessible for that level of quality. Um, so our price points are, you know, average two hundred, three hundred dollars, and as we introduce new categories, we've gone up to five hundred dollars. If we're talking about outerwear, um, and and really, that's what it costs to make a product and sustain a business. What have been the main challenges of working this very international, you know, supply chain, working with people across the world who are making, you know, things for you? What what's that relationship been like? It's fascinating. It's you know, culture matters so much, and um, the way that we've built our supply chain has definitely been through optimization of the process, and uh, we love all the numbers and math that goes around that. But um, have you had to go in and sort of change the way some certain processes are are done? Yeah, we have, and and I mean even Zara, I think was not not I think but Zara was one of the first innovators in that, and. Um, you know, I really admire, and we've, we've, we've all taken that as inspiration for our supply chain, low lead times, uh, um, small quantities until the product is proven. So, so all of those, uh, all of those um, uh, things are, are part of our supply chain. But what makes us successful worldwide is, is not only designing something that works uh, in a mathematical way, but the way that we've built relationships with our factories. Um, and so we, the relationship that we have with some of the owners of these factories end up feeling like we're family, mm -hmm. and they, 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 they say that to us. We, we, you know, we, we, we're loyal to each other, we're growing together, we, we are building their building. And um, I think that you know, when you work in many of these uh, factories and that we've, we've met with many of these also along the way, and we've chosen not to work with, with factories, that this is more of a transaction, it's not a passion. For them, it's about just making lots of lots of products, volume, and just making profits on them. We we actually work with makers that are passionate about what they do and that want to build businesses together. And so, working in a factory in Argentina, the type of relationship we have with with our with the owner of of of, of the factory we work with is is uh, very strong, um, but it's different than the relationship we have with, with the owner of our factory in Scotland, because the cultures are different, but the level of strength of our relationship is similar. So I think, you know, key to our success has been knowing how to deal with different cultures, but keeping the essence of who Shilpa and I are, and forming those very strong relationships that go beyond uh, doing things just for business. How do you keep those relationships strong? Is there just a lot of touch points? Is, is it a lot of in-person work that you do with them? Yeah, you know, it's it's hard because we also think of keeping our costs down, and we now, you know, time-wise, it's very hard to fly into Argentina. You know, right. it takes a day um, just to get there. But um, but yes, now we are at the point where our suppliers fly up to see us. You know, we fly down to see them. Um, we we talk a lot, email, we joke. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, you should WhatsApp. see we're WhatsApping WhatsApp. all the time with emojis. It's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, you know it's real when you have emojis. Oh yeah, <laughs> and you just yeah. have to add like animated gifs, and then you're love it. It was like when my dad discovered emoji, or like, what are you using that for? But our when our suppliers started to use emojis in Latin America, that was awesome too. <laughs> like, wow, oh, man, that that is awesome. Yeah. Oh, it's nice to know that emojis are are changing the way businesses business happens. Yeah. No, totally. And most of our factories are family owned, and so you know we're working with the father, the sons. Um, and some of, most of these factories have been uh, generational, so, so they've gone through generations. So it's just deep, like they're very attached to their factories, just like we are attached to our business, and we are helping them grow back from from a very low point of of, of their uh, of their trajectory due to this migration to Asia. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to kind of change gears a little bit and talk about what your fundraising process was like, your first, kind of the first time pitching investors. Um, so you raised 1.7 in 2013? Yes. And, and so um, what was that process like? How did you get introduced to your very first investors or the very first people you started meeting? So we had a pretty extensive network um, through just, you know, jobs we had in the past through our, you know, respective business schools. So um, my Haas network, Carla's Stanford um, network. Um, but it was honestly the same 
process by which we go about everything that we do. We saw a problem, we developed a methodology, and we went after finding the people that we felt would be best for our business. So we made a list of investors that we wanted to to work with. Um, we went out and met with a few of them. We tested it, basically. We refined it and then optimized the formula and then continued to go from there. So we um, realized pretty quickly that um, investors are looking for specific patterns. So mm -hmm. if you could find the ones that are interested in the space that you are building a business in, that's that's a very important prerequisite and then from there it's really about speaking to a lot of them and understanding um what they're about and what you're you're trying to build making sure that they understand as well because it only works if there's symmetry on both sides um and so we realized actually at the time in 2012 um, 12 yeah so we actually raised sorry in 2012 uh we and we did it in two tranches so our first tranche came in 2012 early 2012 and our second one 2013 in preparation for our launch so yeah yeah and we realized then 2012 that um you know like subscription businesses were a mm -hmm. big deal um they were they were looking for specific patterns in e-commerce at the time um so we went about it to find those investors that matched um what matched our space but were very thoughtful and intentional about making sure that they didn't push our business in a direction that we weren't comfortable so i think I think sometimes people feel, startups feel that they have to compromise their vision in order to get financing. And that is probably one of the worst mistakes that you can make. Right. It's like that those first investors are almost as important as co-founders sometimes. Absolutely. The relationships you will have for the entire lifespan of your business. Right. So how did you go, how did you figure out who would be a, the, you know, a really good fit and who wouldn't push you in a way you didn't want to go? Or who had the type of maybe interest or background that could, could also help you? There's one more thing to note in the time is that um, in 2012, VCs were not putting capital into businesses that held inventory. Oh, um, yeah. The concept of brand was not really developed <laughs> in the VC world back then. What's a brand? Um, and so those are where our two biggest challenges. Brand, we're building a brand, and two, we're making product and holding inventory. Yeah. So, so how did you, what did you say to convince people that that model can work, that you, that you could make it big? Well, investors love story, team, and um, financial models that make sense, mm -hmm. right? So if you, if you meet with enough investors and you find, and you have lots of conversations, over time you will identify the ones that match your philosophy. Uh, and you, and the important thing is to actually refine it along the way. So Carla and I realized that a lot of um, the male investors that we were talking to in the beginning just quite didn't understand the female consumer need that we were addressing. Um, so it, it was never going to make sense for them unless they understood what the problem was. Um, and so the story was missing. So for that, we switched directions and we targeted female VCs that understood the story part of it. And then from there, we basically met with a, a bunch of female VCs, as many as we could find. There's not that many. So please take a bunch as as um, not, not very big. Um, <laughs> but we were then able to pattern match with um, a VC that really understood our team and understood our, our business economics. Yeah. Um, when you look at the unit economics of what we're building, they're incredibly attractive. Um, you know, we have great gross margins. We make money on first purchase. We're not spending a lot of money acquiring our customers because um, they love what we make and they're our advocates themselves. And uh, we definitely spend on marketing and different tactics. We have a retail outlet that we actually haven't talked about. We launched with retail and online at the same time. And so we spend there, but um, ultimately it's a really nice business model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there are, and so we were, um, you know, we through this effort found Maha Ibrahim at Canaan Partners and she had everything that we were looking for, we were bringing everything that she was looking for. She's um, very strong in female business investing, um, as is Canaan Partners Portfolio. Um, but the main thing that they, the, the, it's, not, it's not a gender bias in any way. Um, she's looking for incredibly attractive businesses. And um, from an economic perspective, like, our focus, she understood. And she understood the yeah, problem. Yeah, she innately. understood the, the, the brand, like that we were building a brand. She understood the consumer problem. She understood um, gross margin. When a lot of investors at the time were just ch chasing top 
top line growth. Um, so she she was very thoughtful of, of everything that she was looking for and and um, she loved the team. So yeah. our um, the interesting thing is that all of our other meetings, you know, it was an hour meeting. It's been 45 minutes back and forth talking about what's brand and <laughs> why, what's a, what's a basic, like, you know, what, what, what are kind an of essential. like the, what's an essential product? We would back and forth. So really we would have 15 minutes of sharing the juice of why this is a great investment. Um, but with, with Maha in our first meeting, she was, it was like, the I opposite. Know. She's like, okay. <laughs> and then we like, like talked about our business model most of the time. So, uh, so yeah, no, I, I, it's so funny. In the past batch, it was a company that um, does blowouts, like you know, like on you know, basically blowouts for women. And she has to explain like over and over again what a blowout is to you know a room of many like male investors, and it's it's a real challenge yeah. <laughs> you know, when when people don't really understand you know yeah. the problem or, or or the product. Yeah, and that's when you have to um, really uh, learn how to deliver your pitch depending on your audience, and so. We really refined how we delivered our pitch to men, and men ended up, you know, loving our pitch too at the end. Yeah. But, you know, we just have to figure out how we explain it to them. They uh, had to follow the women. Yeah, <laughs> like you know, then they think about their wife, and then and so so like there are ways of explaining what your product is that will they'll get, they'll understand. So, w did anything about the process particularly surprise you? Um, not really. I mean, we you know we've. Just when when you you hear so many things about how it's gonna go and uh, lots 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 of advice along the way, but once you're living through it, you realize how much everybody says it will suck time out of how you're managing your business, especially your first round, right? Like everything you do is pitch, 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 and you kind of have to put your business on the side, especially because you're probably one or two people running it. Um, and so. To me, like that was really, you know, once we finished, it's like, oh God, back to work right. now. Um, it's, it's, it's like code switching. You have to suddenly jump back into running your company. Yeah. Try to get it done as fast as possible. Yeah. And there's very little time to celebrate. We really make an effort to pause and enjoy the moment mm -hmm. uh, because we have big dreams and, you know, we work so hard to accomplish our next milestone. Then we get to that milestone and, you know, it's like you raise money. It's like, OK, you got to go get work or, uh, you know, we register a certain revenue target and it's great. But um, I think that's the thing that I thought you know, once before I even started building this business, that I would really enjoy those milestones for much, a much longer time. Uh, but it just goes, so it just goes by so quickly. There's um, not a so lot of time. You mentioned that you have retail locations now. So what what uh, fueled the decision to go to open up the first retail locations versus just keep it online? We actually are always multi-channel. Like we never, this was never something that we evolved our business to be. Mm -hmm. For for intentional shopping and buying quality product, like why wouldn't you go see it in person? Right. Um, so for us, it was um, multi, mu having multiple touch points for our consumer was important. Um, we, we launched the brand in June of 2013. The San Francisco showrooms followed almost immediately, it opened that August. Um, so it was already in the works from the beginning. Yeah, physical experiences has always been a part of it. Um, the piece of the part that we're innovating on is how do we continue to grow that physical touch point in a way that's capital efficient. If you're just joining us, I'm Kat Mignolik, and you're listening to Startup School Radio. I'm speaking with Carla Gallardo and Shilpa Shah, the founders of Kuyana, a San Francisco-based luxury lifestyle brand. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, a campaign you launched in 2013 called the Lean Closet Movement. Um, and so part of what you're doing is, is uh, you know, because we're so brainwashed to want to buy all this stuff all, all the time, it's, you know, um, fast fashion. Um, how, do you, uh, how do you go about changing customer behavior? Or what was the kind of, how, how have you done that so far? So it's, it's the Lean Closet movement to us is a continuation of that innovation in the supply chain. So if you carry out the supply chain all the way to after the consumers purchased it and worn it, you have a lot of garments that are sitting and gathering dust in a woman's closet. And to really give the full message of fewer better things, you also have to address that need. Um, and so for us, we realized that if you have a closet that's full of things that you love, it is so much more fulfilling as a, as a woman, you always find the things that you value. So taking those things and those items that you don't love and fulfilling that Kuyana promise was really important. So the Lean Closet 
program rounds out that entire supply chain. So customers now can also take the items out of their closet that they don't love, don't wear, and send it back to us and we'll give them a <coughs> credit on the site towards a uh, Kuyana item that they that they do love. Um, so that that's part of it. It's also um, that altruistic um, feeling of giving something that you don't wear and seeing it actually being used by somebody else is one of um, one of the biggest benefits, I think, as well, of like rounding out this experience to our consumers. So we also made sure that the Lean Closet program, um, the donations that we were collecting went to women who were actually using those those products. So a lot of um, a lot of the whole uh, donation market is actually um, also not as transparent as people think. Um, mm -hmm. It has a lot of work for a lot of opportunity for for innovation. So we actually partner with an organization called Heart, um, based in Los Angeles, and they um, they send all of their donations to the Violence Intervention Program that actually helps women um, starting over after leaving situations of domestic violence. Um, so every piece that we're collecting is actually going to a woman who's building and starting a new life, and that type of like just rounding out of the experience is, is really brings Liquiana promise to to completion. That's really cool. Is there um, have, have you seen is it now like anyone in the country or where are you available? Is this is that part of the program so, um, available anywhere? Yeah. So anyone who purchases online can opt for lean shipping. Um, and then they can send, we send in, a, uh, we send a bag with their purchase that they can then um, put items that, from their closet that they're not wearing and put it back into the bag, into the same box, ship it back to us. So we include a label. Um, and then we take those donations and um, bring them to, to the families in Los Angeles. Um, the, the thing that we are, um, you know, very uh, mindful of is that we're not trying to replace Goodwill or Salvation Army. Like you are really helping women start anew. So we're targeting those pieces that are the last remaining pieces that give a lot of a lot of guilt to women. Oh, I bought those and I just quite didn't wear them, and I spent money. And getting rid of that guilt and making it and turning it into an empower a moment of empowerment. Right, is, and when you're empowering other women as yes, well, it feels absolutely. So great. it really helps women actually get rid of those last few items and then everyone benefits it's, a, it's the biggest win-win so what are some of your best-selling items um uh, pretty i mean we make we're a brand of essentials so pretty much everything um <laughs> but uh like some of our uh you know like the products that are have been winning from the beginning like our our leather tote our travel case set um uh our um, amazing sweater collections, our alpaca capes, our um, our wool coat that came from Italy. Um, it's there. There are so many different ones. Uh, our products are uh, we keep them for we, we keep them as permanent, and so you know the products that have been with us the longest are obviously the best sellers <laughs> yeah. for us. Um, but you know we and and uh, and we have new and newer products that have been their velocity has been. Uh, pretty great to see. So our coat that Shilpa mentioned, um, but accessories overall are top category because it's been with us for a long time. We just launched apparel 2015 March, uh, so it's a new category for us that has been building, um, building quickly, and our customers have been loving. So what has it been like starting a you know a fashion brand uh, in San Francisco? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, we, it's, we always think about, uh, how would have Kuyana grown if we started it in New York or LA and, uh, we loved having started it here because, um, uh, when we started it, it was what, what were we doing the first two years of Kuyana and we were building a supply chain. Uh, we were really focused on the operations of the business and we were building a network of investors, advisors, and that really was here. Uh, and it continues to be here for us uh, at the moment. Um, in terms of marketing our brand though, and, and starting 2013, and as we're thinking of growing a fashion label, um, it's it's challenging to do that from here. And so um, we are, we're constantly traveling to, to New York or LA because now our, our consumer, we're only selling uh, within the US, um, eventually it will be Europe and, 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 um, and countries and other continents. But it's the marketing part is more challenging as we continue to, to grow that business. Um, publishers are in New York right. and LA and, and those are people we're meeting, you know, bit top fashion influencers too. And, uh, um, um, but we are, we think of Kuyana as our team and they're here and, 
um, as we continue to grow our business, there are opportunities for us to um, to start having small offices in, in different cities, depending on what our needs are. Yeah, and, and San Francisco is a great place to set up your foundation, right? And so, like, we were really able to just build a lot of strength here and like in an amazing base and you get such great support um when we were neck deep in code and spreadsheets um and so that like now that we do have that strong foundation we can we can expand on that and add other um you know add more focus more more focus from san um, from new york and and i wonder if if starting it here in san francisco in the early days helped kind of like let you do things differently. Absolutely. You know, you weren't surrounded by people who, you know, a ton of people who'd built like the old fashion retail brands. And, and oh, yeah, it's great because we, I mean, we, <laughs> the way we did it was because we didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. So lots of things were built from scratch just for us imagining and kind of trying to be smart about it. Um, so yeah, not having a box or just the methodology that we're supposed to follow really helped. So just a little bit of advice for, for people who are starting out today, who are starting startups or companies. Um, what is the best advice that you've gotten so far that's kind of carried you through to today? <laughs> um, oh, there's so much advice. Or uh, advice, you, maybe advice you'd want to give yourselves like when you first started, something that surprised you. I think you have to stay true to your vision as as simplistic as that sounds people along the way are going to either applaud your journey criticize attempt to change right in the beginning when it was just Carla and I and you had an investor say you had one meeting where the investor basically tells you your entire business model is wrong mm -hmm. right or you go then to like a trunk show and you know like you have one amazing customer who gets it and the rest don't right and and you have to you have to make sure that you have enough passion for what you're doing and you have to believe that it's right because everybody will try to shake you up along the way um, and and having that resolve is really important because it's what guides you your efforts um, makes it worth it for why you're up, you know, every night till 4 a.m. Um, you know, like the, those are the, that passion has to be unwavering. Um, and it's what eventually everyone will come on board because it's so infectious that, that they want to be part of it. Right. Um, and it also will guide your team. So you can't, you can't lose that along the way. And if you don't have it to begin with, then you're probably pursuing the wrong startup. Yeah. Any, um, any last words from you? Chris? Yeah, for people just getting started? Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it's about being tenacious at the beginning. And, you know, we, you may have to uh, pivot or in, go a little further in your model and change things a little bit. But you definitely have to have an ultimate passion and, and vision uh, for, for what you want to build. And tenacity is really something that you need at the beginning to be very strong and just keep going. It's incredibly hard at the beginning incredibly hard to start something from scratch. Um, so I'll just echo Shilp on that. I definitely do have a lot of advice for later uh, when, <laughs> for all sorts of different stages. That's but, for the next show. Yeah, that's for the next show. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Carla, Shilpa, thank you so much for joining me. Um, please check out Kiana online at www.cuyana.com, kuyana.com, and follow them on Twitter at Kuyana. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Kat Manialik. Thank you for joining us today. And a special thank you to producer Dana Cash, assistant producer Charlene Gotu, and associate producer and engineer Dion Simpkins. Be sure to tune in for another edition of our show next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. I'm Kat Manialik, and you're listening to Startup School Radio on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Wow. I am superstitious.